everyone. Welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Mike Philbrick, CEO from Resolve Asset Management Global. Our very special guests today are Darius Dale, founder and CEO at 42 Macro, and Jason Del Vicario, Portfolio Manager at Hillside Wealth Management. Darius Dale is the founder and CEO of New York-based 42 Macro, an independent investment research firm that aims to disrupt the financial services industry. Prior to founding 42 Macro, Darius was a managing director and partner at Hedgeye Risk Management, a leading independent investment research firm based in Stamford, Connecticut. At Hedgeye, Darius was the sector head of the macro team and was a core contributor to the firm's economic outlook and associated investment strategy views. Jason Del Vicario is a portfolio manager and advisor at Hillside Wealth Management at IA Private Wealth. Having worked in the industry since 1998, he has an exceptional background in discretionary portfolio management with a proven process that has consistently generated superior results. We're going to talk all about that great stuff today. He's a regular on BNM Bloomberg, and he's also one hell of a swimmer and a polar bear. Jason joins us today as a guest advisor panelist. Before we roll, please hit that subscribe button, like us, leave us comments and ratings because it helps more people like you find us. Please enjoy our conversation. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Darius, Jason, welcome to Raise Your Average. It's wonderful and timely to have you both with us. So much to talk about. Yeah, thanks for having Looking me. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Did I miss something? No, I, I, I love it. I love it. I, and I'm sure that um, investors and listeners, other portfolio managers are out there uh, thinking through what the implications are of all of the goings on from tight financial conditions to inflation, volatility, and dispersion around asset prices and potential outcomes. So I'm, I am really keen to, uh, to hear um, Jason and Darius's points of view on this. And then also thinking through how um, portfolio managers, advisors, high net worth individuals can think about the positioning in their portfolios potentially and move incrementally from wherever they are to maybe uh, an approach that uh, incorporates some of the uh, the macro goings on in the world to try and meet um, uh, investors' needs and uh, goals. Very and exciting times, my friend. Exciting. We were remarking uh, before the show, macro's back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we kind of went in hibernation for about yeah. 18 months there when the Fed was rapidly expanded its balance sheet. But uh, well, uh, it seems like when they turn <laughs> off the lights, which uh, all hell breaks loose. So I'm excited to be with your uh, with your audience. So guys, to get things started, um, why don't you uh, take turns telling us uh, each the stories of your careers and your background, what you're working on these days, your mission. Uh, Jason, since it's been, I think, about four years since we last had you on, why don't you uh, get things started? So, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I've been in the business since 1998. I started uh, right out of university with a bachelor's of science in atmospheric sciences, meteorology, like uh, all good money managers start start, start with. Um, and, uh, you know, I spent the better part of 15 years uh, producing mediocre results um, in a sort of a traditional uh, investment advisor 
uh, role where I was wearing all the hats. Um, however, having said that, my passion has always been, since the age of 15, has always been in security selection and portfolio management. It just took me about 15, 15 years to get to the point where I'm doing, as I am now, basically everything that I want to be doing and, and as little of the things that I don't want to be doing. So we've, we've taken the approach, um, which is unique in the Canadian landscape, where we have decided to completely split the roles on our team. So seven years ago, I got together with my brother-in-law. I said, listen, my vision for a wealth management practice. And by the way, at this point, I was one foot out the industry. I had gone through the tech bubble. I'd gone through 2008. I'd been the 25-year-old going to tell people they need to retire later or with less money. And um, for me, the, the interaction with the retail investor was really trying and challenging. And, um, and I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. So 2015, I said to my brother-in-law, we both had similar book sizes. I said, why don't we combine forces? I'll focus on the money management and you focus on the client-facing uh, financial planning. <clears throat> and let's, let's give this a shot. And my, my background, so I did eventually get by CFA. You know, I've read every Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, um, you know, uh, Joel Green, Greenblatt, Peter Lynch, all of these books. And I knew in my mind what the right way and how the right way was to manage a portfolio. But simply put, um, because I was doing the financial planning, the estate planning, running the meetings, doing the portfolio management, I just wasn't able to focus as much on that uh, particular task. And that is the task that I'm really passionate about and that I enjoy. So seven years ago, we ripped the Band-Aid off. I basically gave up my book, gave up those personal connections, which, of course, is really the equity of any sort of financial advisor business. Um, and we both took a leap of faith. Um, and, um, you know, our book has since grown from 60 to 170 million. And our process is very simple. We run concentrated portfolios of high quality, predictable businesses, global high quality, predictable businesses that meet a number of criteria, which you mentioned, Pierre, and, and we, we can probably throw around here over the next uh, few minutes or hour. Um, and um, we're, we're very, very picky. Um, I have a fellow in, in who's actually located in Hong Kong who I've never met. He and I work very closely together and we're solely responsible for the research and, 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 and the portfolio management of our side of the practice. Um, I'll just add one more tidbit. Um, I've used all sorts of, you know, I've used all the software. I've used, when I was at Canaccord, I used Bloomberg because they paid for the terminal. I've used Google uh, 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 screens, Yahoo screens. I've used Morningstar. I've used all of it. And I, and I couldn't find a piece of software that did everything that I wanted it to do in terms of uh, customized metrics, customized screening, and what have you. And so I, I uh, got together with a, um, uh, an industry student project at BCIT. I had five engineers assigned to me. And for 500 tumblers, I built uh, what we call our Hillside Factory app. And basically, this app is uh, wonderful. It, it integrates with the API at Guru Focus, which I think is really the best data source. Um, on the internet for financial data. Um, and it, 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 it is a tremendous help in terms of doing our analytical work. Um, we also believe in speaking with management, um, IR and management of companies that we are interested in or do own. Um, and so in a nutshell, that's our process. I'm having a lot of fun. I can certainly say that this year it's a lot easier. Uh, so not only are we focused on quality predictability, but we also have a very strong value discipline. So we use a hurdle rate of 20%, which I realize is high. And you can imagine that last year, finding anything that would meet a 20% hurdle rate was like we were just tearing our hair out. Um, so this year, we're finally, finally finding some value. 
Uh, while our clients aren't thrilled that they're down, whatever it is, 15% on the year, uh, we're quite pleased because we've got more opportunities in front of us. So uh, I hope I didn't take up too much time there, but that, that gives you an overview of what we're up to. No, but I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion today. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, we're, we're, we're very, uh, we're on polar yeah. opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, processes, right. but obviously yeah, right. I think we're a lot more aligned in terms of being data-driven. Um, I think that that's one thing that ties us all together here is understanding uh, how to weaponize and, and, and wield data and to produce you know, good outcomes for your clients. And so, um, you know, appreciate the, the background, by the way. I, I love hearing people's stories. You know, it's always, we all kind of have an interesting story in this industry. Uh, I certainly have my own. Um, so I, as I mentioned, I, I joined um, this industry uh, back in 2009, kind of at the lows, of the depths of the economy, the, the, <laughs> the financial crisis um, as in India. I guess I like to uh, chase, chase storms, if you will. Um, you know, joined a firm uh, called Hedge I was then called Research Hedge. Um, just as a research uh, group think, group think powerhouse, a bunch of sort of former buy side guys who uh, got together and wanted to do, do a better job of research and obviously what the sell side was putting out. Um, I initially started, I sort of had an, uh, kind of a career pivot as well fairly early on in my career. Um, this is in 2010. I, I initially started off covering uh, consumer companies and, and quite frankly, I hated it. <laughs> it was so boring. There was all this like cool macro stuff going on. I was reading Zero Hedge and I'm like, Man, I'm not going to read a 10K and put this model together. And so, uh, you know, I finally just said, hey, look, you know, I, I'm going to go do something else if I can't uh, cover macro. And sort of that's where, uh, that's where it all began. Um, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with Hedgeye, it's a pretty, pretty decent size uh, uh, research firm now. Uh, I sort of, I guess, the, my contribution to that firm and to the industry was sort of um, designing and developing their uh, quad process, which is their systematic regime segmentation uh, process that they use to uh, forecast. Um, not only the economy, but also help the clients with their asset allocation and portfolio construction solutions. So uh, that's kind of my baby there. And, and, and eventually I left um, a couple of years ago, almost a couple of years ago now, uh, to start 42 Macro. You know, I figured I could, you know, there's some things that I wanted to improve on, do better, do differently. Um, and ultimately, it's been a, been a great experience thus far and great, great experiment, um, if you will. Because, uh, you know, we've, we've certainly uh, built, uh, you know, quite a big audience uh, in, a, in a pretty small amount of time. Um, but also, you know, we're delivering some pretty, pretty fantastic results. Uh, for, for our clients as well, you know, we, we run a, a very sophisticated portfolio construction process that some of uh, many of our uh, sort of retail and high net worth subscribers follow along with. And that, that's up, you know, about a percent year to date, four percent year over year, which obviously, you know, relative to most things in the broader market, most, you know, the balanced portfolios are obviously down double digits. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud, you know, proud I'm excited to get to a more calm state where we can start allocating money to work for real and kind of not banging my head on the table for 100 basis points of return. But it is what it is. Uh, that's kind of the nature of markets these days. Thanks, Darius. Thanks, Jason. It's nice to hear the uh, you know varying uh, angles that you're both coming from. And um, as I said, you know, uh, there's going to be lots to talk about today. I think the uh, the recent event, of course, is this Jackson Hole meeting, where you know the Fed somehow you know was unexpectedly very hawkish. I mean, I'm comparing that to obviously investor expectations given the run up in the market since June. And, um, you know, that, that seemed to have burst the bubble very sharply, very quickly. And Darius, if you want to give it a go, I think I'm sure you've got some, some, uh, very profound thoughts on, on what's going on right now, how, uh, you know, how your framework has, uh, you know, what assessments your framework is, 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 uh, throwing out right now in terms of whether or not inflation has peaked. Um, that seems to be quite a discussion right now. And, uh, the Fed doesn't seem to think so. Neither does the ECB. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. Isabel Schneebel's remarks about the uh, the great volatility that's coming. 
uh, that we're in for a longer <laughs> period. Uh, agree, disagree? Oh, 100% agree. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, doesn't it seem like the ECB policymakers are just taking their cues from the Fed? They're like, <laughs> well, they got guys that come out and talk every day, so why not yeah. us? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Used to, They're just like, used to be that they yeah. didn't even talk. You know, they just showed up. Totally. It was Alan Greenspan with a briefcase <laughs> full of notes, and, and you had to figure out what he was going to do. You know, totally. Absolutely, so. Matt. Yeah. If there's smoke coming out of the Eccles <laughs> building, you'd know it was a rate hike. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, I got I got a few slides um, just kind of the, to, to answer your question, Pierre, on sort of like what we what we're thinking from um, uh, what we're thinking just in terms of inflation peaking. So so let me take a step back. Phase one of this, what we've been calling phase, you know, we're in the third phase of this monetary policy regime here in the U.S. and it's sort of extending itself globally, if only through the lens of the currency channel. Um, phase one of the regime was you know sort of from November through June, where the Fed had to effectively catch up. To market pricing on 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 policy rates on tightening expectations, um, which is born out of the fact that the Fed had a very delayed reaction function to a lot of the inflation pressure because of its erroneous forecasts on on transitory. Um, now, phase two was the market pricing in the response to all the Fed tightening that we've accumulated and are likely to accumulate over the coming quarters, which is a potential uh, downturn in the economy. Uh, so clearly, the market got you know from the lows of June through kind of the highs of mid August, mid to late August. Market was very comfortable pricing in an eventual dovish Fed pivot uh, to the tune of we saw you know over you know seventy five basis points of rate cuts priced into money markets for for next year uh, as a function of this again this this view of the market uh, taking that hey inflation's going to come down growth's going to come down and really cause an about face pivot about by the Fed we're now in phase three in my opinion uh, I mean phase three is characterized by uh, the Fed pushing back on that expectation understanding the lessons of history about pivoting too soon off of these, um, these tightening cycles and ultimately um, doing what it takes to sort of maintain credibility uh, with the bond market, with investors broadly, that they're going to you know, sort of get the job done on, on fighting inflation. And so that's sort of where we are today, which is the market's now pricing out a lot of that, that easing of financial conditions, uh, both in, in, re in, in, near, in the near term, but also the, the, the easing of, of, of a policy rate expectations that we're gonna see in 2023. Uh, so just going back to the just a few slides on this inflation dynamic, because, again, I, I think there's so much going on. I think volatility is the right word in terms of uh, is, is Isabel uh, Schnabel over and uh, over in the ECB. Uh, volatility is the right word. Whenever you have higher inflation, and this is empirically proven, it's not rocket science saying this, but when the higher inflation you have, the higher volatility, realized volatility of inflation you have. Typically, when you have higher realized volatility of inflation, you have higher realized volatility of real economic output. And as a function of that, you know, this is why the Fed is so concerned about structural inflation expectations and why their price to be, their, their uh, maximum employment mandate is conditional on price stability, because I think they understand everything I just said about, hey, it's really hard to run an economy when you have that much economic volatility as a function of inflation. So um, this is, um, in our opinion, this is why we are in phase three of the monetary policy regime, as opposed to a runaway phase two, which I think the markets were very comfortable with, um, you know, prior to, to a couple of days ago. So. Uh, just a few slides on, on this entire discussion. So uh, as you mentioned, Pierre, Mike, we do run a regime segmentation process of 42 macro. It's designed to understand the trending rates of growth. That'd be the y-axis there and the trending rates of inflation. And as you can see, we, the U.S. economy since really July of last year has been in what we call inflation. That's growth trending lower, inflation trending higher. In the month of August, at least according to our projections and now cast, we're likely to transition to deflation where inflation is going to be trending lower and growth's gonna be trending higher. Now that doesn't mean, you know, inflation is solved. We're talking about coming off of a 40 year high and inflation pick your statistic. So that doesn't necessarily mean things are good 
But we have, in fact, seen uh, quite a few positive developments. Um, and this is why, you know, I think the, the discussion around inflation is very two-sided at this particular juncture. Um, it's, it's um, it, you know, we've seen this massive deceleration in core inflation momentum in the month of July, where you look at trim mean inflation, median inflation, sticky inflation, uh, trim mean PCA, PC inflation, and most importantly, core PC inflation, which is, you know, clearly the Fed's kind of preferred metric that they use to kind of uh, forecast inflation dynamics. I'll skip a few slides and just highlight the breakdown we saw in core PCE inflation on a month-over-month annualized basis. We slowed 630-ish basis points month-over-month in the month of July. There's only been one month in the history of that time series going back to the late 1950s of a sharper slowdown in inflation. And so there is something to be said about the transitory, uh, the, at least the, the, the transitory debate, that narrative is in my opinion, more probable than it was prior to July. I think, you know, this is could, it could, we could wind up in a scenario where both the persistent and transitory camps on inflation are proven right just at different intervals. Um, and so I think this, I think, again, as I mentioned, inflation risk is two-sided. We've done a, a considerable amount of work that suggests that it's very unlikely we see this kind of breakdown sustain itself in the coming months. But if we, uh, if we do see that breakdown sustain itself, then I think we're going to have a very different conversation about, uh, about, what the Fed's reaction function is going to be. But ultimately, I think, again, the, 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 the most likely scenario is that that breakdown does not sustain itself. We sort of trough <laughs> out around, let's call it 3 to 4% core inflation momentum, and that's going to make the Fed's job a lot farther, in our opinion, than the average investor realizes. How, how, does, how, does, how do you see the growth engine coming back into this, right? Into the sort of, I think you refer to as quad four. So you have this slowing inflation I guess my concern is is also slowing growth rather than a reacceleration in growth and and moving from an environment where the Fed has been able to add the Fed put and maybe being more in an environment where Ooh. it's a Fed covered call in that the Fed is struggling to deal with the inflationary inputs. And thus, every time that we do get a spurt in growth, that we have this ceiling that we're hitting, sort of like a covered call, putting it in option terms, yeah. where you just hit this ceiling constantly. And as growth reignites, inflation reignites yeah. in a larger magnitude and thus causes this, this sort of Fed reaction function that is very new and different from yeah, sort of the like last spot on, man. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll say on the growth side, I think the base case scenario is that we're going to continue to slow. In fact, that's what the model is obviously projecting by projecting deflation. Um, but in terms of the leading indicators for growth, um, the best leading indicators are usually those of, uh, from the, in terms of leading indicators, generally speaking, financial markets, survey data, or, you know, kind of in that order. And when you look at financial markets, uh, one thing we look at, we track the shocks uh, that we observe in different segments of the economy, different sectors of the economy through the interest rate uh, front. And when you look at real interest rates, you know, we're having like a, a plus two X, an excess of plus two a sigma shock on a trailing three years ESOR basis for real interest rates, historically speaking, as denoted by these uh, dotted lines in this chart here, historically, you see a pretty significant slowdown that is quite persistent from, you know, from those shocks, you know, typically 12 to 18 months of economic deterioration from, from, from those levels. And so we only recently reached uh, the two sigma threshold on uh, this analysis on real interest rates, similar setup with mortgage rates. I think we got um, to a two sigma, actually, we got to three sigma plus in mortgage rates uh, a couple of months ago. Um, so that's going to have some, that, that's already having a real negative implication on the housing sector. It's, it's basically in recession now. And then you talk about this through the lens of corporate borrowing costs. So when you look at those three indicators from a leading, leading indicator perspective, you're talking about an economic slowdown that should persist at least through the middle of next year. 
at the, at the bare minimum, the middle of next year, at least according to um, the historical data. But the one thing I will say on the other side of all that is that this is an economy that is very different than the economy we're sort of used to. Um, this is an economy that's growing gangbusters from the perspective of the labor market. You know, in fact, the labor market is, in fact, overheating by double, at least when you look at it in, in U.S. terms and rate of change terms. So what I'm showing in this, uh, in this analysis here is the 2015 and 19 trend, the pre-COVID trend of these various metrics, private payrolls growth, private sector average hourly earnings, uh, average weekly hours, and ultimately the product of all that, which is aggregate labor income. Um, but you look at 3.7% on a three-month annualized basis, that's more than double where we were in the pre-COVID period. Uh, more than double, basically double where we were in private sector average hourly earnings. Uh, uh, corporations are flexing their kind of margin pressure, or they're, they're flexing uh, weekly hours to, to alleviate some margin pressure, but ultimately not flexing it enough because, again, you have aggregate labor income that's growing at 8.3% on a three month annualized basis. And that's more, you know, that's more than double what we're talking about from a pre COVID perspective. So the key takeaway is that when you look at consumer balance sheets and when you look at the health of the labor market, this is obviously the labor market here. When you look at consumer balance sheets, you know, with household balance, household debt being well off, you know, recent highs and trending lower, um, you know, this is a very, this is a different economy. I think we have to acknowledge the fact that 2.5% on the policy rate might have been neutral in 2018. In fact, Powell called it out as neutral in 2018. In this economy, it's probably not neutral and the Fed is probably not anywhere close to being restrictive. And so ultimately, I think the, um, the yield curve is probably correct. In its assessment that you know where you know recession risk is, is not legit is not a legitimate uh, modal outcome at this particular point, and what I mean by that is that the ten-year, three months has yet to invert it historically. That's the actual signal to put the countdown on a recession clock. So it's a tricky economy, man. This is an economy yep. that has got more juice to the to the growth side than I think a lot of us um, anticipated. You know, at least certainly most of the market anticipated a couple of months ago. But it's also an economy with a lot more inflation dynamism and volatility. That might make the Fed's job, um, you know, more more challenging um, over the next kind of six to twelve months. So, uh, <laughs> how that shakes out in asset market terms, we could talk about how to construct a portfolio in that regard. But I, I think we'll save that for a later part of the discussion. Darius, yeah, sorry, I just just a quick question, Darius. Yeah, I'm talking about labor. How how accurate? To what extent? Uh, I, I guess it's a, it's it's a dual question. How accurate is the claim that? There are two jobs, two two job openings for every job being demanded right now, which is causing, you know, some inflationary pressure in the labor market or from the labor market. To what extent, like, like there obviously have been adjustments. I think I think this is an area worth sort of explaining a little bit, just to because because we you know coming out of the pandemic, you know, a lot of people um, obviously dropped out of the labor market. Uh, let's say permanently, according to statisticians. And how did we get to the state where, where you know, you have uh, such a, a seem, seemingly artificially um, driven shortage in the labor market? When I say artificially, I mean because of people's choices. But how does that work? Yeah. So uh, I'll start by saying, so you're, you're spot on, and, and I'll elaborate on some of the things you say. But I, I don't know that the movement in the labor market is artificial. I think there's a couple of things driving it. Uh, on, the first, on the one hand, we have a pretty substantial decline in the labor force participation rate for 55 plus year olds. Um, we've obviously seen um, what had been delayed retirements throughout the, you know, kind of the post-crisis era kind of accelerate in mass. And, and obviously the, the health, the health um, you know, the health scare associated with COVID uh, clearly probably accelerated a decent amount of that. 
I also happen to think that the household sector balance sheet being strong as it is through the lens of both, um, through the lens of, of, of obviously uh, debt, but also on the asset side, you have the number one asset most households own is their house up 20% year over year after being up, I want to say 12 to 18% uh, pick your locality last year. So we're having a considerable, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say bubble, but certainly a melt up in, in, in the asset side of the household balance sheet. And all that's being reflected in, uh, in terms of the wealth effect. If you look at the latest data of household net worth relative to disposable personal income, you know, it's about, we're, we're over 8x, um, 818% to be exact um, uh, uh, on that metric. And, you know, that's basically a double of where it peaked out at prior to COVID. And so households are feeling very rich. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so in terms of feeling very rich, you're probably seeing a lot of sort of marginal labor force participation that, that accelerated to being out of the labor market. I use uh, this as an example. Uh, for instance, you know, my, I myself personally, just anecdotally, uh, moved out of the city to upstate New York. And if anyone who's lived in Manhattan understands the, the difference between your cost of living in Manhattan versus upstate New York is, is pretty substantial, right? And so, you know, you, you don't necessarily need a two-income household in upstate New York in the same way you do um, in downstate, you know, Westchester, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think there's a lot of that going on in the labor market as well, because we're seeing the female labor force participation rate of 100 basis points from its pre-COVID high. So we have a very structurally tight labor market from the perspective of supply uh, in that regard. And so it's ultimately manifesting itself through a pretty considerable amount of, of higher wages um, and, and a lot more sort of um, confidence and flexibility amongst uh, employees and bargaining power ultimately. Um, so this, this, uh, this chart shows the, uh, the, the, the total amount of uh, job openings relative to the total number of unemployed uh, people, uh, people who are identifying themselves as looking for jobs and unemployed. That's at 1.8X, we're coming off an all-time high there. 3.1%, the private sector quits rate coming off an all-time high there. That's a, obviously an indication of confidence. You don't quit your job to get a worse job or a lower paying job. You quit your job because you think the labor market is extremely robust. And then lastly, um, the, it's all channeling its way through the wage channel, which is um, private sector uh, uh, compensation. When you look at total compensation, salaries, benefits, et cetera, um, that's at 5.5% on a year-over-year -year basis through the second quarter for private sector. That's an all-time high in this metric. And so again, as I mentioned, this is a labor market that we just have not seen this kind of tautness and this kind of momentum in a really, really long time. And obviously it's contributing to some of the core services oriented inflation, um, but some of the goods inflation that we're seeing kind of come out of the time series um, as a function of the, you know, unwind of some of the supply chain disruptions. It's making this a very difficult, volatile, kind of confusing time to analyze, but ultimately we got to just trust the data and let it be our gut. Are, are you seeing, so, so I was talking with uh, Nelly Tominga over, or Neely Tominga over at uh, Distill, on the idea of, you know, this, this, uh, labor market reformation, are you seeing any sort of productivity alterations? It's very short term, but so you, you've got this demand for more labor and you've got this sort of changing, uh, type of individual that's in the labor market, i.e. Gen Xers and boomers who are kind of workhorses when mm -hmm. it comes to work-life balance versus millennials, Gen Z, who are a little bit more mm -hmm. focused on work-life balance. And we're hearing this anecdotally through, you know, various, yeah. whether it's quiet quitting, this idea that work-life balance. So is, the, is it potentially a possibility that as we're experiencing this increase in labor costs, that's got implications for growth and profit margins, obviously through the, the corporate dynamics and, and multiples on those types of stocks, but anecdotally, we hear that as they get, as Xers and boomers retire, you have to yeah. hire sort of 1.25 of this new workforce 
to to bring the same level of productivity. So I'm yeah. wondering if both Darius and Jason, are you guys seeing that either bottom up from as you look at corporations or discuss these issues with the uh, managements that be Jason and, and Darius, are you seeing any of that sort of productivity issue manifesting in any data? Because it, it's quite anecdotal at the moment. It's really kind of hard to put a finger on other than Oh, yeah, I'll be quick, Jason. I'll, let you, I'll, I'll toss it over to you. Uh, let me just be real quick here because I've been talking the mic here. But uh, just, yeah, so the answer, it's, it's in the data. So we're seeing productivity. If you look at on a year-over-year rate of change basis, we had an all-time low in that, in that time series at minus 2.5%. So this is, in terms of growth rate, this is as unproductive as the U.S. economy we've ever seen. So there's definitely, it's a little <laughs> bit more than a double at this point. Um, you know, I, I, I would tend to agree that the, you know, the, you know, there, there, is a, there is a significant sort of fundamental shift uh, in the labor market through the lens of, you know, transitioning from baby boomers and particularly Gen Xers. I mean, Gen Xers and millennials couldn't be further apart in terms of, you know, their, their outlook on labor and, and kind of um, and, and dealing with all that. And as a function of this sort of, you know, you mentioned it, like this 1.25 kind of uh, uh, replacement cycle, you know, it's showing up in unit labor costs at 9.5% year over year, which is the highest number we've seen since going back to the mid to late or mid 80s. So, yes, the labor market is 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 so tight that it's now starting to kind of cause problems for corporates. And you're finally starting to see corporate operating margins, whether you look at S&P or, or operating margins, or you look at uh, corporate profits as a percentage of GDP, we're now rolling off what you know, I would consider to be some fairly unsustainable highs, particularly in the context of a Fed that seems to be hell-bent on reducing nominal GDP. All right, I'll weigh in. <laughs> uh, so how, how do I put this? Um, I, I, I am interested in macro from a sort of a personal perspective. I have all sorts of opinions and views. Um, you know, the, I, I have an opinion of where I think inflation is going and interest rates and so on and so forth. Um, but the, the reality is, is I don't know. Um, and, and these sorts of inputs for, for us, we want to focus on things that we can control. We don't control inflation. We don't control policy. We don't control if it's Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, what Putin's doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we chose, we choose to focus on, on, on things that we can control, which is namely, uh, identifying, as I mentioned, high quality, predictable companies, um, owning them in our portfolios and, and sort of keeping an eye in terms of, uh, are they continuing to, to meet the factors and primers, at least on, the, on a financial perspective, that, that led us to, uh, to owning them in the first place. <clears throat> um, but I do read a lot of macro stuff, and I do find it very interesting, and I do have uh, opinions on, on all of this stuff. Um, I mean, pr productivity, product, correct me if I'm wrong, but productivity has been dropping fairly steadily in developed countries for the better About part of three years. decades now, I think. Um, and I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with, um, Dr. Lacey Hunt at Hoisington, but, but he, he and, and a few others, not many, in my opinion, have gotten the, so to me, this all comes down to interest rates. When we talk about, you know, inflation, deflation, really we're talking about interest rates. And of course, interest rates is the single biggest input in terms of, uh, computing the, the present value of a, of a cash flow stream, be it a bond, a stock, piece of real estate or what have you. So. And from where I sit, um, because we also do have some allocation to fixed income, um, I think what we're talking about here, we could be talking about inflation, but we're also still really talking about interest rates too. Um, I think that that is uh, an important and interesting discussion. And, you, you know, we've seen interest rates since 1982 
I, many people have been calling the bond bull market, you know, for the end of this, ever since I started paying attention to this in 2008, the bond bull market was going to end. Um, but, but it would seem that we've had a 40-year trend in interest rates that's been going down. And in my mind, this has been fairly well um, explained by the buildup of debt. So Darius talks about how the households in the United States are doing well. Okay. Um, I don't know how well the average household or the below average household in the United States or Canada or Italy or Japan, for that matter, are doing. Because, of course, a 10% inflation rate is going to have a disproportionate effect on their ability to buy food, buy gas, um, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, using anecdotal evidence here in Canada, my, my base case assumption is that we're already in a recession. In fact, we've been in a recession since, I would say, February. We've had two GDP prints in the U.S. that are negative, and now all of a sudden, two GDP prints that are negative isn't the definition of a recession. So we would change the goalposts. Um, we've had the yield curve that is most inverted now since 1982. And with all due respect, Darius, now people say, well, it's the three-month and the 10-year, not the 10 and the two. or the th I mean, we can pick this apart, but the, the 10 and 2, I believe, has had either a 96 or 100% predictor of, of, of recession in the past. Um, and I don't think this time is different, and I do think we are probably in a recession. And as a long-term focused investor, um, that excites me because I, I think that's going to give us some opportunities, which, of course, we, that we, we can discuss here. Um, so when debt... So um, I think it was Rogart and Rogoff, right? They did a study uh, looking at debt to GDP. Once debt to GDP of a country gets beyond 90%, we start to see uh, growth start to slow. And so in my opinion, we are in a boom-bust cycle that is aided and abetted by um, backwards-looking Fed policy. Um, they were too slow, to, too slow to raise rates here. They're going to be too slow to lower rate. We're going to get a, you know, Something's going to break whether it's a recession, whether it's a problem in the credit markets or what have you. And then they go, oh, 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 and we're going to go right back down to 0% again. That's my base case. And we've seen this pattern play out since 2006 now, right? You know, housing never went down. We don't have a housing bubble. We get 2008. Oh, apparently, we did have a housing bubble. They ram rates back down to 0%. 2018, we're on autopilot. We're going to keep raising rates. Uh, market pukes 20%, right back down to 0%. COVID hits, right back down to 0%. So, my assumption is, and I, I do think inflation has peaked, again, just using anecdotal evidence in terms of gas prices, uh, food prices, airline tickets are being discounted, targets, inventory levels, Amazon, all these retailers, their inventory levels are through the roof. They're discounting like crazy. Um, I do think that we're going to see an, an inflation coming down. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's my view on, on macro. I, I, I do see you know, I wish central banks, honestly, I wish central banks didn't exist. I wish we could allow the free market to determine the price. It makes four of us, I, I'm guessing. <laughs> having having, yeah, having yeah. a monopoly over the price and quantity of money to me is criminal. I just don't understand how this setup happened in the first place and how everybody still is okay with uh, central banks. My personal opinion is that they do more harm than good. Um, and... Uh, you know, I just assume that they're going to be late to uh, the party to lower rates again. And, and we're, it's just, it seems to be on repeat, which becomes really interesting for somebody like Darius. Um, I don't want to say it becomes easier for you, but I mean, this might be a question I'd put to you, Darius. Does, does it become easier when we have a, a sort, of, sort of financial assets that are so dependent on Fed policy 
um, because to me, it seems like we just keep seeing these, the, the, these patterns repeat themselves. Um, and if I were a macro-focused uh, investor, I, I, I think it might be easier than in the past where, you know, the, the Fed wasn't, I mean, I know they're not supposed to care about the stock market and they're not supposed to care about what politicians say and think, but, but their actions suggest otherwise. Um, and their actions seem to be a function of human nature, which, as we know, doesn't really change. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's where I come from on a macro perspective. Just to your question, Mike, um, in terms of the management teams that we're talking to, uh, yeah, I'm a, ability to retain, attract and retain labor is probably top of the list in terms of their challenges, whether it's a consulting company in Norway we own or, uh, you know, a tech company in Israel, it's, they're, they're all saying the same thing. So I would agree from a bottom up perspective, you're the, you know, we're seeing that as well. Yeah. That's sort of the point is that, you know, as much as it, uh, the purists in the stock picking Graham and Dodd type of approach, call it with a little Buffett growth on there and moat would be claiming that you're insulated. You're not insulated. There's wage cost pressures. They're going to be pushed through all, um, economic entities and corporate operators. And I, you know, I'm assuming your approach is to, to have that margin of safety and whatnot, but it's just interesting to hear from you as, as you are interacting at ground zero or at the bottom level of the corporate interface, whether the top down side of things is actually congruent, which it sounds like it, it is that has implications as you've already alluded to, there's the discounted cash flow rate on expected earnings, but expected earnings are a function of the inputs to create the earnings. I think this also longer term, uh, creates a lot of automation, creates a lot of opportunity for everything from robotics to AI checkouts, where we're going to be removing humans from uh, the base rates of, of the, those interactions with technology in order to cope with some of this, that, that may be a, a slip. I think, I think, I think we could all agree that, um, that, but you know, I, it's only a matter of time before the fed murders the economy. Guaranteed. Right? But, but the question is sure. when, what, when does that happen? How does it happen? What does it do to the economy? What does it do to, you know, how does this unfold? How does the economy you, well, you know, I, I would, so I would actually push back on yeah, that. Yeah, go ahead. To be honest with you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> um, no. Again, I, I'll be very clear in saying our base case scenario is for something that looks like a a near recession. Uh, yeah. I don't know that. Uh, and and JC brought this up. Um, the the tens threes uh, a yield curve is actually the one that does have the the perfect hit. Rate. Yeah, and that's the one that Campbell Harvey wrote his paper on back in the in the mid eighties. The tens twos is the one that CNBC focuses on because. It inverts more frequently, and it's much more of a thing to sell people. And but they uh, were just on. They were so, just on with uh, Meb Faber just a few days ago. Oh the, yeah, the latest Meb yeah, Faber podcast uh, covered. Yeah, and now uh, was uh, with was Campbell that, Harvey and Rob Arnett. Rob yeah. Arnett, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so that that the the fact that it hasn't inverted, which and it typically has a twelve to eighteen month lead time in the recession, tells you that a recession should not at this particular juncture be your modal outcome, unless of course this time is different. But didn't However, we just have arguing, GDP? GDP yeah. prints that were negative? Like, oh, no, yeah, that's fine. Progressive? You had a technical recession. What we're talking about is an actual recession where you see a drawdown in total employment, yeah. drawdown in income, drawdown in, in you know, the various CapEx, all these different sectors of the economy. And the MBER recession was what I'm sort of uh, alluding to. Yeah, but right um, now we're not, just talking about demand destruction, right? Yeah, yeah or at least an outlook for economy demand. that yeah. on, the, on the production yeah. side uh, has had two negative prints that are mostly driven by um, sort of inventory swings. 
we've certainly, if you look at gross domestic income, we're still growing. In fact, we're accelerating in terms of gross domestic income. And you both, and in terms of how the MBR um, dates recessions, they look at the average of gross domestic income and gross domestic product. And right now, the average of those two is, is an economy that is still technically growing, albeit modestly. So we're, 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 however you want to slice and dice it, we are not in an actual recession. We might have had a technical recession, depending on how the third uh, revision of Q2 yeah. GDP shakes out. But it certainly has not. I mean, if you look at the labor, just look at the labor market. This is not a, a drawdown in total employment. Um, anyway, the one thing I will say is, is uh, the pushing back on your point, Pierre, I don't know that the Fed tightening to a, a state that causes a recession is the modal outcome yet. And the reason I say that is, again, this is an economy that has a significantly higher degree of sort of juice of, of, of growth, of nominal growth potential. Um, you know, it's, you know, right now the Fed's new, uh, policy rate is at 2.5%. They said that was neutral back in 2018 when inflation was 3% and real growth was peaking out at 3%, you know, on a year-over-year rate of change basis. You know, we're talking about levels of orders of magnitude of that at this particular juncture. So uh, I would, I would, and again, I don't think the Goldilocks soft landing is the modal outcome, but certainly when you look at the most recent inflation data, which we just talked about, um, oh, that's on slide 80 here. Actually, let me show my screen again. My apologies. You know, when you're talking about the, the breakdown in inflation that we just saw, if we stay at these rates of breakdown, so we saw a 460 break to basis point breakdown in trim mean uh, CPI inflation on a month of a month annualized rate of change basis. Um, that's here. Uh, we said a foreign or 200 and let's say 247 basis point of median inflation. Again, this is median inflation, everything in the time series, yeah. you know, sticky inflation, 270 basis points. Now, these are the kinds of breakdowns in inflation, as indicated by this bottom panel in these charts, that almost never happen outside of recession. And so to me, there is something happening here in terms of the easing of supply chain conditions, et cetera, that's causing some significant degree of, of inflation shock to the downside in the same way that we saw in inflation shock to right. the upside. Now, going back to kind of the point I made earlier, we're going, it's very likely at least according to our secular inflation model, which is a um, you know, pretty sophisticated dynamic factor model that is designed to project the trend mean uh, of inflation. According to that model, we're going to settle out at around, you know, kind of the midpoint of the estimate is around two and a half percent for core PCE, which is, you know, basically a 90 basis points higher than what it trended at in the prior decade. That's a, that's a meaningful move. I mean, if we're talking about a Fed that's trying to get us back to two on, on headline inflation in terms of headline PCE, and it's going to get stuck at, let's call it three, three and a half. That's a big problem because that is a Fed in that scenario um, that's going to tighten us into a slowdown. But to me, I don't know that we're there yet. I think this is something we're going to have to learn yeah. based on what appears to be transitory factors coming out of the time series. Once we're having this conversation three or four months from now, and we've got, got, a, got a chance to look around and see, okay, we're done with the transitory coming out. Where are we now? Then I think we can have a discussion about whether the Fed tightens us to a well beyond restrictive policy setting that causes a recession. An actual yeah. obsession. You think? You think so, anecdotally? So, you, sorry, go ahead, Jason. I was. I was just going to say, you know, when when rates go from eight to ten percent, that's a twenty five percent increase. When rates go from one to four, so the Fed rates at two and a half percent, but nobody's borrowing at two and a half percent, right? You're getting a line of credit at four or five, or your your. I think your mortgage rates in the states are like six or seven percent. So we've yeah. we've had a near two hundred to maybe even arguably three hundred percent increase in interest rates. How that doesn't break something. I mean, I, I would love to think that it doesn't, but, um, you know, the last three, four, five rate rising cycles, we got a recession. So I, I don't know how this rate rising cycle, we don't get a recession, especially when rates were basically pinned to zero for so long. 
And again, we've seen this movie before from 2009 to 2018, prior to 2000. People do stupid things when money's cheap and free. Yeah. Uh, there's a misallocation of capital. Um, and um, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know how we get through this without, uh, without uh, some serious uh, pain bit in the stock market, real estate market. <laughs> I mean, real estate market is 13% of the Canadian economy right now. The real estate market, for all intents and purposes, is dead in Canada. Um, and it's basically it's beyond that in the U.S. We're contracting okay. at minus sixty percent in terms of uh, housing starts and building permits. You know, okay, through so, on an annualized so basis. Like what, it is beyond what, that. What, what, what percent does that selling real estate, buying real estate, mortgages construct? What percent of that is the U.S. economy in Canada? I it's believe it's thirteen percent. That's right. It's less than four percent. Yeah, it's not. A, okay, it's yeah, not a, Canada it's not it's as meaningful as it was. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm, again, I'm not the, the the base case scenario is the economy is going to slow. I think we're sort of uh, arguing two sides of the same coin here. <laughs> The Fed does have a four track record at engineering soft landings, but the one thing that's that's working in their favor in this particular juncture is the fact that we have not seen the kind of capital misallocation in this cycle that you have historically seen heading into recession. I mean, this is the growth rate of financial sector leverage heading into the um, into the GFC. Obviously, you know, trending at a plus two sigma um, um, growth rate um, on a five, five years East Core basis uh, into the GFC. Now, that's very clearly not the dynamic that we have today. Same thing with, uh, sorry, that's the household sector. This is financial sector here. And so it's very clearly not the dynamic we have today. The one sector of the economy where I am concerned about, you know, misallocation of capital is in fact the corporate sector. We do have the kind of leverage growth in the corporate sector um, that would historically sort of perpetuate, you know, a much more, um, you know, kind of deleveraging process, a much more significant deleveraging process that could result and wind up in a recession. So I think the debate in the jury is still very much out, yeah. which is again, going back to that, your curve chart, there's a reason why the 10 twos is inverted and 10 three months is not inverted because it is a legitimate debate whether or not we should be having a recession. Um, if you look at consumer expectations, those are one of leading indicators for recessions right now. You know, if you look at the spread between consumer confidence expectations and the, and the real life conditions on the ground in terms of present situation, you know, we're in the second percentile of how negative this spread is currently. So it's telling you that, there, you know, if you think about this from the, the, the lens of this debate we're having right now, the leading indicators are saying we're going into a bad place. But the conditions so, on the ground are telling you that things are kind of fine. We're in a booming economy. And so, so it's, it's, it's can inflation decelerate fast enough to not allow the Fed to get their policy rate into a restrictive territory will determine yeah. whether or not we actually wind up in a recession. You think, uh, so how would you, how, go ahead. Sorry, just one quick question, Darius. How would you, how would can, you um, think about the fact that consumer balance sheets are great and consumer expectations are in the toilet? That those seem to be at odds to me. Yeah, I mean, they, they are at odds. But I mean, at the end of the day, what, what, what drives consumer spending is the red line. What drives the sort of, you know, forward-looking kind of estimation on whether or not the cycle's peaking and roll over is the blue line. But right now, if you look at consumer spending, it's, it's, it's actually hanging in there. Um, what slide is that? Sorry, I got way too many slides in this deck. Here we go. Yeah, consumer spending at 0.6% on a three-month annualized basis. It's nothing to write home about, but it's certainly not the kind of, you know, doomsday scenario you would have expected to see given the 9% inflation on your screen and all the stories about, you know, you know, low-income consumer being left for dead. The reality is, is we're still technically growing on a real basis in terms of consumer spending. And I, I don't think the average investor realizes that. I think there's the, there is something to be said about how strong this economy it is. In rate of change terms, it's obviously delta negative and will remain delta negative for an extended period of time. It's just, I'm not so sure that a recession is the modal outcome. And if, certainly if the recession is the modal outcome, we got to have a very different discussion yeah. 
as market participants, because one thing I know for sure is that we have not priced in a recession. Not even, not, not even come close to pricing yeah. in a recession. Um, yeah. So, so Darius, I also want to come back to something that you're mentioning over and over again, which is the modal outcome. And not this time you shared slides, but the previous time you shared slides, if you could bring those slides up and it was the longer term inflation volatility side of things, that was, those were the charts that you were showing. Just not this set, the, just the previous set of slides, because there, there's something there that, um, it was sort of longer term. It had sort of the inflation around volatility. That was one, one chart. Uh, in the previous gosh. deck or in this deck? I didn't want to jump in because there was a flow of conversation. No, in this deck, but in just as you shared the last, it was the time before you shared. So you just shared right here? and then stopped sharing yeah. and, and shared. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. I think these are the, yes. So I want to point out something here that is um, interesting and it, it speaks to two items. One is what is a modal outcome? So the modal outcome is the, the, the average, so to speak. It, it, it's the, so we're trying to think of what is the, the point estimate here. What's so, I think, incredibly underestimated at this point is that the dispersion around wow. that modal outcome is incredibly 100%. wide vis-a-vis -vis history. Okay. So if we think about inflation volatility and think about its connection to real economic output that Darius outlined much earlier in this conversation, the thing that we have to consider is that our distribution of outcomes is probably two or three times wider than mm -hmm. it's been in quite some time because of these inflationary output, um, um, issues. So, um, I don't know if you guys have, have read H.L. Mann's Ice and Fire paper, just talking about inflation volatility. So inflation volatility, this is the volatility around, so the dispersion around the average inflation rate prior to 1990 was about 5.4%. I might be slightly off in these, in the numbers, because I'm going from memory. From 1990 to today, it's about 1.8 or 1.9%. Right. So you have this inflation volatility input, which directly inputs real economic output, as Darius mentioned, that is usually three times as wide as it's been since 1990. <laughs> the impact of which is this very conversation that we're having, right? It's, it's this very conversation that you're saying, Jason, but I see this stuff and I think about this in the context of the last 30 or 40 years, and this is the outcome. It is quite different. The fact that we have inflation is one thing. The fact that we have such little insight or the fact that our estimates are now so much wider than they've ever been is a real challenge and it needs to be reflected in asset prices. It's not just the discount rate on those cash flow assets. It's the uncertainty around the discount rate that again amplifies the discount that we have to get today for assets that we buy to get better returns in the future. And so I just want to, like, there's, there's some nuance here that's just incredibly important. And I know Darius, you're talking about that mode, that mean, that sort of average, and they're, they're all slightly different definitions. I am aware of my stats class, but they, 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 they speak to this. Yes, we're targeting this middle outcome, but we have to, we have to so, absolutely respect that the the range of outcomes is much wider than it's ever been. So I just want to, you know, so this is why this I'll, is such a contentious I'll, I'll issue. I'll step in and take the anyway. opposite side of that and suggest that this isn't important at all. 
And the reason that it's not important is if you're allocating capital with the view of a 10, 20, 30 year time horizon, and you say to me, are we going to have higher inflation? I'll say, yes. Are we going to have lower inflation? I'll say, yes. Are we going to have higher rates, lower rates, different people in, in political office? Yep. All of it. Yes. Will we have wars over the next 10 years? Yep. All of that. All of that is true. The, the one thing that is interesting that I had my eyes to open to in the, in the, in sort of the last six months, and I don't know if you guys have, I mean, you may have read some of uh, Buffett's annual letters, but I, I'd really encourage you to read the 1983 letter that he wrote. And he goes through a very interesting example where he highlights the difference between the generally accepted narrative that one wants to favor uh, hard assets, um, tangible assets in an inflationary environment as the best hedge to hedge against inflation. And he uses the example and compares a oil co. So a CapEx heavy company that's exploring oil uh, versus a um, uh, asset like uh, intangible asset company such as Seize Candy. So your, 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 your asset heavy uh, commodity producer in an inflationary environment, let's all agree that the price of what they're going to sell goes up. Oil, copper, gold, coal, whatever. Um, but if your CapEx to sales is, let's say, 10% or 20% or something like that, your CapEx is also going to go up. To your point, Mike, if we've got a tight labor market, labor costs are going up and margins may go down. Um, so these commodity companies, they don't control the price for, for, they could be the best run oil and gas company in the world. And at the end of the day, they're going to get whatever the spot price is for oil or, or gas. And he compares this with Seize Candy. Seize Candy's intangible asset, of course, is their brand. Um, and, and I, I think they bought, I think Berkshire bought Seas Candy for 20 or 30 or $40 million. And they've extracted over $1.2 billion of free cash flow from this business because that business doesn't require a lot of capital to maintain their operations and grow their operations. So all of this is to say, whether we get sticky inflation, higher inflation, low inflation, in our opinion. A biz, the, the, the best business model, whether it's high inflation, low inflation, really any type of environment is one that has high gross margins, uh, has asset light business models. So their CapEx to sales, let's say, are less than 5%. They don't carry a lot of debt. We typically see companies that don't have a lot of debt. They're able to um, uh, increase their market share and be on their front foot in a recessionary environment than those who are saddled with a lot of debt. Um, and they possess an intangible um, asset, whether it's IP, whether it's a brand, whether it's we own right move in the UK, which is the MLS equivalent in Canada, or sorry, the MLS equivalent in the UK. Um, and it's a website. And I mean, we could argue it's worth nothing. Um, but 80% of people who are, are clicking onto the internet in the UK go to right move to look for a house to buy or sell or rent. Uh, you know, the classifieds business typically is a sort of a winner take all, take all business um, model. Um, so in, in, in that context, um, at least this is what we focus on, we are looking for companies that can consistently and have consistently grown their earnings. And if their, you know, if their earnings growth rate over the past has been 15 or 20% and going forward, it's going to be now 10% because of, you know, some of the input costs have gone up, as you noted. Um, you know, we think, we think that that's where um, our best efforts are, are, are spent. Um, because 
you know, the, the reality is, I mean, we could pull everybody on this call. We could pull all the listeners, say, okay, where's inflation in six months? Where are interest rates in six months? Where's oil in six months? You know, we might have a few that are right. You have to sort of consistently be right on the macro front, in my opinion, um, because inherently it's, it's market timing. Um, and, you know, it, it's... <laughs> well, now we're going to have a conversation. Oh, you've really done it because now. value yeah. investing is market timing as well. <laughs> Warren Buffett's two largest investments this past year, mm -hmm. Chevron and Occidental. Um, so I, again, I, I get the idea conceptually of looking for high profit margins. That's fine. Mm, using 83 Buffett story. I don't know. I mean, Warren Buffett sits on, on his high horse and talks about how crypto is going to destroy the world while silently he is funding new bank, a digital bank out of Brazil. So, you know, you, you, you get sure, your trigger. Sure. He's going to talk about Warren Buffett net, is the grandpa that, that does a bunch net of worth stuff because he's is two faced and he, he's and he didn't get it through value investing. He did it through the structure of his insurance company, the leverage he employed okay. and doing it. So <laughs> all good. Right. maybe we put that you are. in a little bit of a, I, 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 I'm triggered. I'm triggered. I'm Jason, just, you bring I'm up just a good messing. point. Like it, it, you're absolutely right. If you're, if you're going to do macro well, you need to have a systematic process that is more right than wrong over a consistent period of time. I don't think that is any different than being a, an mm -hmm. being a bottom up stock picker, right? If you're, you know, there's a, if you bought Yahoo instead Agreed. of Google in 2000, if your screen told you to buy Yahoo in 2000 instead of Google, you'd be having a very different career, right? <laughs> so I think at the end of the day, you need to be good at what you're doing to have good superior results. I think that's kind of the key takeaway of this discussion. But Mike, to your point, you know, it's not, I, I don't think that there's any one discipline that allows you to make money in financial markets, nor is there any one discipline outside of stupidity and, 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 and disregarding data that causes you to lose money, <laughs> right? Like there's, there's a bunch of ways to be right, a bunch yeah. of ways to be wrong. But I think the key takeaway from this conversation that I'm getting is that to your point, Mike, the distribution of, of, of outcomes is as wide as we've seen in a long time. And I think it goes back to the fact that inflation is high, inflation begets more volatility, more economic volatility, therefore the outcomes are wide. And oh, by the way, we have a very different Fed reaction function than the one we're all used to for the past, you know, let's call it 12 to 20 yeah. years. So I think that's, um, I think we have to be so, aware so, and humble and honest about the, the, the range of outcomes as investors. We need to be humble. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that buying company A or company B or buying security yeah. or factor A or factor B is going to work three to five years from now in this new regime. I, I love this, you know, like Jason's coming from the, uh, the infrared side of the spectrum and, and Darius and, and Mike are more or less coming from the ultraviolet end of the spectrum. <laughs> And somewhere, you know, somewhere in the middle, we're going to, you know, we're going to meet at the green, you yeah. know, at the, at the balance of green in the middle of the spectrum where, where, you know, we can maybe agree on a couple of things by the end of this conversation. Yeah. 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 Well, it's really interesting to, to think through, you know, looking at the macro lens and then thinking through the micro lens, what, what are the makeup, Jason, of some of the companies that you're seeing that have these, you know, high margins that you feel will be protected? through wage inflation and, and we have seen some value investors start to make significant capital uh, contributions to the sector of energy. So, you know, I, I, I have no say in that really. I, I just observe it casually and I say, okay, that's interesting. But what are you seeing in your portfolio? Is there anything that you're seeing that's manifesting? Because if you're managing a tight sort of 15 to 20 stock portfolio, where you're looking for those high margins, 
Are there any um, sort of sector biases that you're seeing in the portfolio? And then how do you correct for those sector biases? Like, do you, do you have to sort of say, well, I'll take two or three companies from this really favored sector and then start looking further afield? How do you manage that scenario in, in the, in macro, in, in your portfolio management framework, given that macro to this particular style of investing is, is a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a third wheel. It's not, it's not something that you're constantly considering. But I also wonder what are the what are the insights that you're gleaning from what you're doing every day from bottom up. That's a good question. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, we you know we 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 are looking for companies that are generated strong and predictable returns on invested capital. Um, you know, there's a company that when we're you looking say, at uh, predictable. I understand what strong means. What do you mean when you say predictable? Well, if you have low, low a, variance in the in the his, like the time series, or basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or steadily increasing as opposed to steadily going down. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, there's, I, I, I'm just thinking out loud here. There's a company we're looking at, Fever Tree. So, Fever Tree produces uh, the premium tonic uh, that, that yeah. I've yeah. heard. It's delicious, by the way. <laughs> Endorse. Okay. Endorse. True. Fever Tree. It's true. How true. I, I am some of that. Pro- I'm, I, I'm some of that profit market 100%. In the States and Canada. So, they went public at something like uh, a pound. Um, they shot up to 40 pounds and now they're down, down to about eight pounds. They're trading at, I think, 25 times earnings. This is, this is a very strong brand. It's a premium brand. It's a global brand. It has number one market share in every single country that they operate in, but for one. Anyone want to take a stab at what country that is? You, no. <laughs> That's US, UK. It's actually Probably Germany. US. It's Germany. So Germany has a very, uh, and I didn't know this, a very strong history in terms of producing tonic. So they're not, they're not number one in Germany. Uh, so this, you know, this is a dominant brand. This is, this is as, as far as we're concerned, a beautiful business. Um, it is fairly asset linked. Uh, their margins have been very nice, but their gross margins have come down. And this is what has led the stock price to drop 75%. In our view, it's still a little bit overvalued. We want it below 20 times earnings, uh, you know, to meet that 20% hurdle rate, which is, you know, a real big hurdle for us to get over. Um, but why are their margins down? So their margins are down because glass is more expensive. And they, so most of their, part of the premium of Fever Tree is that they, they offer their product in, in a glass bottle as opposed to an aluminum can. So glass prices have gone up. Shipping prices have gone up. So uh, up until very recently, they just started, they've just opened their own production facility in the U.S. But typically, all of the stuff was produced in the U.K. and that it had to get to the U.S. or it had to get to Italy and so on and so forth. So where we, where we look at this, we say, okay, are these, and, and, and we're always generally asking these questions, are these short-term problems? Is this a short-term glitch or is this a problem that is going to have a long-term implication on our estimate of fair value or intrinsic value, if you want to call it that? So we do think that shipping prices will come down. In fact, they have come down quite a bit. Um, we do think that the increase in shipping prices because of supply chain, COVID, all this stuff, we do. I mean, we do think COVID is a short-term thing. I mean, it's taken three years and it's still ongoing, but I do think we get to a point where COVID becomes a distant memory, although maybe not because the average flu that we get is apparently a derivative of the 1918 Spanish flu, but that's a whole nother <laughs> hour and a half or two hours. Um, but generally, when we're finding high-quality, predictable businesses trading for less than 20 times earnings, there's usually some sort of glitch. And that glitch, are where we spend most of our time, is trying to determine if this is a short-term glitch or a long-term glitch. So does Fever Tree get back? So 
All the while, by the way, their revenues have been increasing by like 20, 25%. The company, if anything, has problems meeting the demand. Um, and again, we think that is a short-term issue. Um, you know, some of the other companies that we own, we own need to milk in Australia. Uh, they're, they're 50% of their business is providing uh, infant formula to the Chinese uh, market. Um, and most of that was actually being provided through what they call the Daegu channel, where uh, Chinese people would go to Australia, fill up their suitcases. I, I didn't even know this existed, but fill up their suitcases with products from Australia, New Zealand, and take them back to China uh, and sell them and help fund their, their vacation. Um, of course, when COVID hit, that channel just went to zero. Um, so, so they had uh, a lot of problems. And again, do, do we think that that is a short-term problem or a long-term problem? So, um, you know, and then maybe this gets us into a sort of a macro discussion. Do we think inflation is here forever? Do we need to adjust our models um, because uh, margins are getting compressed? Um, it sounds like Darius is of a similar opinion to me is that we inflation has peaked and it's likely to come down. Um, I think it probably goes lower than two and a half percent as, as, as his model suggests. But um, regardless of zero percent or two and a half percent or three percent, uh, it's likely to come down from these levels. Um, and so, again, we feel that this is a short term issue. We really want to use transitory whenever um, and short term. You know, short term could be six months, could be three years when it comes to COVID. But again, when, you know, we're focused on what does this business look like in 10 or 20 years, uh, six months or three years is by definition short term. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're seeing it for sure. But I think the biggest, I mean, the biggest thing that we've seen is the types of companies that we own. So we're, I guess you would call us growth investors with a very strong value uh, uh, discipline. Um is that the discount rate for discounting these cash flows has, has doubled. Uh, you double the discount rate, you know, the asset drops 50%. Um, you know, we haven't quite seen all growth stocks drop 50%, but, um, you know, we have, for example, we've seen the free cash flow yield in our portfolio go from 5% to 8%. Um, just as an example, I mean, I think that's a tremendous amount of value for, and, you know, the average growth rate for the past three years of our weighted, we call it Hillside Co. Weighted Hillside Co. is 22%. The average return on equity, 63%. Debt to equity, 0.5%. Um, you know, we think um, our basket of businesses is, if anything, relatively undervalued right now. Um, but um, yeah, that's how we approach things. Yeah, it's actually... I think. Yeah, and I, I like that. I, I, I do... See, this is where I get into the, the mm. sort of whole market timing thing. A value investor looking for growth is market timing based on a different set of criteria than price. So you will reduce uh, your positions when their prices are high. You'll increase the positions when you feel you're getting that margin of safety and those uh, returns to the portfolio. So when we're active managers, it is hard to get away from all being having some modem of discerning price and its fairness and then timing that. So this is where, you know, the, I get triggered by certain things, but I, I absolutely accept that this is a worthwhile investment endeavor in an approach when it's done in a disciplined nature, but it does have evolving exposures. It does have evolving exposures per market set. I also wonder, so last year when you were having challenges finding these valued businesses, 
Did you did you have sort of a higher cash position generally? We did, yeah. So our sell discipline, um, to to your point, is that we will sell something if the fair value becomes greater than two times our our estimate. Or so we get we assign a conviction level to all of the stocks that we own or we're interested in. Low, medium, high. Low is three percent weight. Medium is a five percent weight. High to high is a ten percent weight. So if a three percent weight becomes a six six percent. So if it goes. 2x on weighting or 2x on, on, on valuation, uh, we will trim. So, you know, we're selling things like uh, Rationale. Rationale is a, they produce the um, all-in-one steamers and cookers that you might see in restaurants or, or, or catering, uh, uh, and they're out of Germany. They're training at 55 times earnings. They told us long-term they think they can increase their earnings at high single digits, low double digits. I mean, that's very, very expensive. Um, so, yeah, we, we did... We were raising cash, not because of any other reason than we were executing our sell discipline. Um, on the buy side, uh, yeah, you're right. We, we have a 20% hurdle rate. Uh, we hope that short-term uh, annoyed investors will sell down something to a level where, where we're going to buy. But it's not market timing in, in terms of, you know, we're, we're following a, a macro signal in terms of, you know, of, of inflation or interest rates or politics or, or any of this type of stuff in terms of how to allocate capital. It strikes me that it's, well, you're following a macro, sim, you're following a macro indicator, which is the corporate profitability of yeah, the underlying Yeah, I was going to say, it does strike me that you are making inflation forecast. You said like, uh, for instance, the, the tonic producer, um, you're saying the glass isn't going to be high. I mean, that to me is a very direct macro view. I, I don't have an ability to forecast glass prices, but I, I, it's clear that, that that is obviously an input. And so I, I'm, I'm certainly not um, uh, coming at the process. What, what I was trying to make elaborate the conversation in the same way that Mike is doing is, is making sure that everyone realizes, all the listeners, that you, you, you are always making a macro bet, whether you acknowledge it implicitly and attack it ferociously with the data-driven process or not, doesn't mean you're not making a macro view. You're making a macro view that, hey, XYZ problem is short-term, and it's going to go away. That is a macro view. Sure. I mean, the macro view we're making is that we think that the way to generate uh, and build wealth over time is to own, be a business owner, not a lender to a business, uh, not own uh, rocks or, or commodities, let's say. Um, so we think that the path to, uh, I mean, and we, we, are, we are investing for the retail investor in Canada. People, you know, generally people have retirement goals. We think that the best chance of success of achieving those retirement goals is to own high quality, predictable businesses, regardless of the macro backdrop. When we're making little, little, little changes at the margins, sure. Um, we're talking about cash that we had back in 2021. We had 5% cash. Uh, we think that um, uh, you know, the, the, the evidence strongly suggests that one wants to be an owner of businesses and one wants to have the majority of their capital allocated to uh, those endeavors, regardless of, let's say, the macro backdrop. Yeah, I agree with that. Darius, why don't you talk about your macro outlook now? And let's see, <laughs> Let, let's see if we can have a meeting of the minds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, let me start by saying, uh, this Jason, that was very helpful, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I love, I don't get enough uh, company pitches. So um, actually just the meeting I had, uh, client meeting I had just before this meeting, um, they're probably some of the longest term invest growth investors in the world. You all know who they are. I'm certainly not going to name the names, but you definitely know who they are. Um, the reason they talk to me 
is not because they need me to tell them what businesses to go invest in. I mean, they're all traveling around the world, meeting with management teams, et cetera, et cetera. They know what businesses to invest in. The, re the reason they meet with me is on risk management and portfolio construction. You know, do I want to have XYZ percent in a Mexican cement company or, you know, Dutch glass making company? Or is that a not necessarily a good time to be allocating to this particular style of risk? Maybe I have a smaller presented position or maybe I have a smaller conviction in this new idea or, or maybe this is an opportune time to take profits and XYZ uh, a set of securities. I mean, one, one big call we made last year was, uh, you know, helping investors get out of kind of the higher beta side of, of growth. Um, we, we saw the writing on the wall and the tightening liquidity conditions and, um, and, and, and help them, you know, they, they were, they had done really well for an extended period of time on the higher beta side of tech growth, the Kathy Wood type names. And, and they, and they, and they booked a considerable amount of profits, um, last year, you know, kind of as a function of our, our research view had nothing to do with, you know, the companies themselves. It's just, it's just a function of, Hey, we're getting into a different macro regime. So, um, just on that front, I do think there's a meeting of the minds in terms of risk management. Because again, that's what we're trying to do is help investors with risk management. I think at the end of the day, I'm not going to, you can forget more on the way to the bathroom about company A, B, or C. Uh, but anyway, just on, on Pierre, on the, on the macro view, I'll, I'll be really quick um, in terms of you know, our outlook, you know, just in terms of, uh, and Mike, you, you hit on this. It's actually really funny you said this. I was circling this while you were talking, but in terms of the medium term outlook, the distribution of probable outcomes is flat and wide as it's been in recent years. <laughs> this is literally on our key takeaway slide. We do this uh, a presentation every month for our, uh, for our subscribers and, and supplement it every week, you know, every Saturday. So uh, the one thing I'll say is just in terms of the modal outcome from that, from the effect of that distribution, we are transitioning into what we call deflation. That's where growth and inflation are trending lower, negative, um, negative deltas on, on growth, negative deltas on inflation. And historically speaking, based on, you know, about as careful back tests as I've seen on this side of the table and in the industry, um, based on the, the back tests, you know, between different asset classes, different sectors, style factors, et cetera, you're going to want to have a defensive lean in your portfolio, whether it be through style factor risk, you know, low beta, you know, dividends, quality, all the kind of stuff that Jason would, you know, kind of, you know, probably favor at a reasonable price, um, would be the kind of things that you want to be uh, allocated to in your portfolio, inexpensive, high beta, cyclicals, value, small caps. In fact, a lot of places where a lot of investors crowded into in the first six months of the year. And so that kind of, you know, just it's sort of the same way with, um, with the fixed income markets as well. And so one thing we do for our subscribers and for our, for our audience, uh, 42 macro is, 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 you know, take all the four looking views that we have on, on the economy and relate them specifically back to portfolio construction through the lens of, you know, expected returns, volatility, covariance, and percent positive ratios. And ultimately we help them sort of transition their portfolios from state A, which is where has the world been? in the prior regime, including, you know, different factors such as, you know, Fed tightening its policy rate, balance sheet reduction, fiscal policy tightening, et cetera. What's the speed of the magnitude of the change of growth and inflation to where is the world going to be, at least according to our forecast. Now, obviously with any process, there's going to be forecast error, but obviously you know, there's, you know, generally speaking, there's less forecast error than there are accurate forecasts. So, um, you know, we understand that, hey, we're going from this setup, which favors, you know, these kinds of sectors and style factors and disfavors those kinds of sectors and style factors to this setup here, which favors these kind of sectors and style factors at the expense of those, those things here. And what we're showing here on the x-axis in these diagrams is uh, the expected, or sorry, the volatility covariance rankings as a measure of risk. And on the y-axis is a percent positive ratio and expected returns uh, as a measure of reward. And so we're doing this across uh, asset classes, you know, different industries, um, you know, different other asset classes. And ultimately what we're trying to do is help investors think about 
the world from a portfolio construction perspective based on everything we think we can know about growth, inflation, and the Fed's reaction function to all that stuff. Will we be right most of the, or most of the time? Yes, there's some times, obviously, when economic volatility is as high as it's been. We're going to have forecasts there. But as I said, you know, we're you know, one of the few people that I'm aware of that are actually making money on a you know, year-to-date and year-over-year basis. And so I think the, you know, the process is certainly doing what it's supposed to do, which is help investors minimize drawdown risks. And I think that's, that's obviously incredibly important, as we've talked about before, whether you're funding retirement, endowment, pension plans, that drawdown risk is a very real um, in, in, volatility boogeyman, if you will. You know, you, you lose 20, you got to make back 30 to be break even. I think we all know sort of the math behind those types of things. And um, that consistency of return does allow for more flexibility at the yeah. uh, asset user. Um, Absolutely. Uh, place position. So, so it's, it's, it's a more, a more conservative environment. Uh, n- don't be out there taking a whole bunch of, of, of risks at the moment, monitor and measure that risk, which I think, you know, Jason's process also does just inherently, probably always, I mean, that starts there. Um, what, what can change your view or do we need to go through that deflationary sort of scenario in order to set up the next growth scenario? What, you know, you talked a little bit about, I can't remember if we did this before or after sort of the yeah. soft landing ish. So what do you have your eyes trained on Darius, the moment, um, that will give you that sort of tilting either way, whether we're going to come out of this with a, a softish landing or it's going to be a little harder. What are the kind of the, the key takeaways there that, that you are keenly observing for? Yeah, that's a great question. So to me, it's the number one, two, three answer to that question is where does inflation momentum stall out? As I mentioned in the month of July, we saw a significant deterioration in inflation momentum. That was obviously positive for asset markets, positive for the economy as well. And, you know, are we going to go back to levels like, you know, that we trended at pre-COVID that is consistent with the Fed's inflation mandate? Or are we going to stall out somewhere closer to 3 to 4% in a lot of these metrics? And if we stall out at 3 to 4% in these kinds of metrics, then what's going to happen is that we're going to see a pretty significant drag on net liquidity, um, whether you look at it through the lens of the Fed's balance sheet, the Treasury General account balance, reverse repo facility balance. All those things are going to take you towards our bear case scenario because it ultimately means the Fed is, had his foot on the brake for a longer. Um, I think Jay Powell did an excellent job sort of communicating what I thought he should have been communicating, which is, you know, the concept of the Fed pivoting next year and cutting interest rates is not only inconsistent with, you know, what current inflation dynamics would suggest in terms of the outlook for inflation, but also it's very inconsistent with historical inflation episodes and inflation fighting regimes, not just in the U.S., but also in abroad. You know, typically you're talking about something that looks, you need to be tight, restrictive for 12, 18 months to really see material kind of, um, uh, degradation and inflation trending momentum. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, if, if we do see inflation settle out at levels that are 50, 100, 150 basis points north of levels that are consistent with the Fed's 2% target, they will have their foot on the brake for a much longer period of time and they will take policy into restrictive. I would argue it's very far from restrictive at this point, as you can just tell by the labor market, very clearly not, you know, we're not, we're not doing much damage to the broader economy they will take us into restrictive and we will have a downturn that is not priced in. So I think we need a couple more inflation prints. You know, I think we're having this conversation in October, November, we'll, we'll know a lot more on what the likely path forward is. Do you think it. anecdotally the Fed was sitting there thinking that the market took the, uh, 
the mm-hmm. inflation momentum, you know, at zero, uh, the wrong way that they misunderstood it or that they were worried that the market wasn't getting the signals that the fed is trying to communicate to the market that they weren't getting it right. So yes and no. Um, so we saw, we've seen, we've seen inflation break evens, inflation swap rates. Those have breaking that broken down pretty, uh, pretty substantially. Um, so the, the market from that perspective, from the inflation pricing perspective, the market is moving in that direction. This is two year inflation swaps, uh, sorry, one year, two year, uh, five year and 10 year, the market is moving in their direction. Now, the problem is if you look at it from a structural perspective, we're now starting to bottom out at levels that are extremely inconsistent with their price stability mandate. You know, this 2.5% on a 10 year, for instance, is the trailing three year average prior to COVID 2% on a five year inflation swap rate. You know, we're talking about a hundred basis points more of inflation price again. So we've, the improvement we've seen has really stalled out since the since kind of mid to late July. We saw agriculture prices bottom. Um, we saw industrial metal prices bottom then. And we're now starting to see uh, crude oil prices bottom. You know, obviously the SPR release, China Zero COVID was weighing on those, uh, the crude oil, the energy markets. But if we start to see energy markets start to behave in the same way that we've seen agriculture and industrial metals prices, then I think the, you know, kind of the, ba- the bear case scenario the probability of the bear case scenario is going to start to rise again at expense of what had become a rising probability of this Goldilocks soft landing. Like I said, we've never seen outside of recession the kind of lapse in inflation momentum we saw in the month of July. So there is something to be said about inflation being transitory. It just how much of it was transitory. Right. And if not enough of it was transitory, then I guess the bear case scenario that will rise in probability terms and also in market pricing terms over the next several quarters. So I think this is the jury still out. Awesome. Any, uh, Jason, any final words on your side of the coin there on the, uh, uh, my, 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 my best guess is that, uh, the central banks will talk tough, raise rates, something will break and they will pivot. Um, I don't think this time is different. I realize inflation's higher than it has been in, in previous uh, rate rising cycles, but I think inflation uh, can and will come down quickly. Um, I think that these higher rates are really hurting people and, and corporations. Um, and, um, you know, as I said, I certainly feels like we're in a recession. The, the, the GDP, GDP prints from, from where I sit being negative would suggest that we're in a recession. If we're not in one now, we, we will likely be in one soon. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think that probably sets up the conditions for equity markets to go lower. And, um, I think at that point, that's when you do want to take on more risk and, 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 and do allocate capital to, um, uh, high quality, predictable businesses that have a strong competitive advantage and, 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 and history profile of, of increasing their earnings. Um, you know, at the end of 2021, uh, people were throwing money at companies that had no earnings. Um, price to sales was used as a valuation metric, which, which really, uh, was interesting. Yeah. That's always a sign. (laughs) Yeah. That's always a sign. Yeah. When people start to use price to sales, like, is it 2000 again? Sales. Exactly. (laughs) It's funny you should mention that because I, I mean, I started in 1998 and a lot of this stuff, I'm like, I've already had these arguments i've already seen all this stuff before and it was it was the tech it was the tech felt a lot like the tech bubble actually um so yeah i mean uh you know greedy when others are fearful and all that good stuff uh i i do think we are going to have a tremendous buying opportunity um in front of us in the next uh number of months 
Um, and I think that's somewhat consistent with what Darius is saying. Um, but that, yes, the spectrum of outcomes is certainly very, very wide. And unfortunately, I, I think that we have risk assets that are being, um, you know, really priced on based on what central banks are doing and say, you know, even saying, let alone doing. Um, and and I, I find that to be a challenging environment in which to allocate capital. Um, and, and so uh, by default, we generally try and, as I said earlier, we try and spend as little time thinking about these things. Um, but from a personal perspective, I'm very interested in it, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and um, yeah, those are, those are my thoughts. Thank you. All right. Excellent. See, we found awesome. some good, some found some common ground. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Of course. Yeah. Uh, one last question for you both. What's an interest or a hobby that you could talk about for hours? <laughs> well, for, for me, it's cold water swimming. Um, <laughs> I go. watched, uh, I watched Wim Hof, a documentary on Wim Hof, who's the Iceman. He's this, this Dutch hippie guy who's really embraced um, cold water immersion. Uh, we were at our cabin in the pandemic, which is where I am right now, which is literally on the water. You know, March 2020, the water temperature here is about seven degrees Celsius. And I had always avoided going into cold water as much as possible. And so I just made the decision to rip the banding off and give it a go. Um, and it's been unbelievable. I love it. I crave it. Uh, I have a group that I set up. We go every Thursday morning when I'm in town in Vancouver, rain, snow, sleet. Um, uh, and it's just, it's, it, it is bar none. And from a value perspective, it costs zero dollars. <laughs> it is bar none. It is bar none. The best way to start the day. Um, it, 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 it uh, people ask me, how does it make me feel? It feels like on those days when I immerse myself in cold water that I can accomplish anything. Cause I've just done something that's quite difficult. Um, you know, you get a, a, a certainly a, a lift and a, and a, and a, and a bit of a jump in your step. Um, and uh, so for, for anybody that's listening, who's ever wondered what it's like, um, you know, my two guarantees are one, you're not going to die. And two, you're going to feel like a million dollars. And I think it's good to challenge yourself and get out of your comfort zone and do things that are a bit difficult. So for me, uh, and this is something that I've kept going even after uh, the pandemic, uh, for me, that would be one of the hobbies that I could talk about for a long time. That's excellent. I'm laughing because Two things black people hate the most are being or going in water and being cold. Well, hold on, hold on, Darius, hold on. I mean, I I love yeah. this whole I love Wim Hof. I love the yeah. whole cold water immersion thing. Um, but you know, having played some professional football and some college football for many years of my life, oh. sitting in an ice tub up to here was the only way to survive when you do two and three day practices. So you talk about squeezing your, uh, your your system and getting that inflammation out yeah. of every so it joint. It yeah. works. It works. It's horrible. It's horrible, but it works. And it's yeah. the only time it works. Just, just to your point, Mike, sorry, Darius, just, I, I play a high level of squash even still to this day. And I've had every single anti-inflammatory drug that's out there and cold water 
does more. The, the, the only problem with it is, you know, you, you almost have to kind of immerse yourself every couple of hours to keep to keep up with the, with the effectiveness of the of the anti-inflammatories. Um, but yeah, that's one of the other benefits that's just been massive. Yeah. Um, and I've you know I've got all my squash buddies uh, into it, and yeah, it's fun. It's works, man. You you didn't keep doing it, Darius. After yeah, after post football, <laughs> like, you didn't keep getting. You're like I left that behind. Before my least favorite part of training camp was sitting in those ice tubs. Much <laughs> rather do two a days all day. And just get, yeah, yeah. give me another drill. Um, yeah. So uh, by the way, great question and, and great answer, Jason. <laughs> yeah. I, I love hearing kind of how um, you know how people kind of you know spend their time and because again we this is an industry as we all know we spend way too much time in front of the screens, right? Like it's it's nice to be and 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 unfortunately answering your question. The nerd that I am, I spent all weekend. My fiance was uh, up in Montreal, up in, on your side of the border, uh, yeah. and so I spent all weekend here, just like building and, and kind of iterating our models. I mean, one thing that uh, kind of we've been talking about in this conversation um, is the concept that there is more volatility in economic time series. And you know, one thing that you need when you're building a model, obviously you have to train it on a certain set of data, um, and, and clearly the volatility itself, the realized volatility time series, eventually going to get caught up into the into the models and into the projections, but I'm not so sure that, to your point, Jason, I think you're pretty confident that we're going to go back to this disinflationary 2% and below our world. And I'm not so sure that based on some of these more structured dynamics that has changed, that is the case. You know, you want to have a little bit less autoregression in your model and stuff like that. So kind of my answer to your question, Pierre, would be, you know, kind of metric modeling. <laughs> you know, it's something that I cut my teeth on. I, I love it. I, yeah. I've read every book on it. I think um, I think it's really fascinating, and you know, because again, oh, I don't think we're trying yeah. to you know oh, create pinpoint precision. I'd like to be precise and pinpoint and, and get every single forecast correct. But what we're really trying to do is take everything that we can know and project it into the future, so that we can make informed investment decisions on a consistent basis. Because again, I don't, I don't, as as intelligent as I am, I don't trust myself to say inflation is going to go back to two because because I because I believe it. You know, I, I you know just I don't. I don't have enough gray hair in my head. I haven't been through enough cycles. Um, I don't think anybody, maybe with the exception of Mr. Buffett himself and his partner, Charlie Munger, um, can, can make those kind of assertions without actually doing the work. So um, that's probably my answer to your question. It's just how do we get better at solving this problem that is figuring out what the economy is doing? Yeah. <laughs> More screen time. So I, I've yeah. got a question. I'm going to ask the question and I'm not, I'm not, I will refuse an answer, but uh, when you do econometric modeling how do you handle the linear modeling right. with the non-linear outcomes yeah but i'm going to save that one i'm not i'm not i'm gonna get that Short one answer later that's that's one for that we'll start the next time darius is on belong. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good luck i love it baby okay yeah. well guys yeah, thank you it. both so much that was uh that all right was very stimulating conversation thank you Oh, but, but yeah. last, let, let's tell everybody where they can find you. I know we did at the beginning. Let's bookend it so everyone knows where you are. If you've got Twitter handles and websites and all that good stuff. Jason, why don't you hit everybody up with all of sure, the yeah. stuff? Sure, yeah. I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn, Jason Del Vicario. Um, I am on Twitter, but not as active on there. Uh, similarly, just search my name and the website for our uh, practice is hillsidewealth.ca. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. And then uh, my name is Darius Del, I'm the founder and CEO of 42 Macro. We consult. You manage money, we consult you. <laughs> Biggest institutions in the world, mom and pop retailers, all the way down to you name it. So uh, come check us out at 42 Macro. I'm pretty active on Twitter as well. 42 Macro, D-Dale, D-D-A-L-E is my handle. Darius, I think I sold you short on the intro. 
Oh, no, not at all, man. I did. I said, I said, you know, I said smaller <laughs> investors, high net worth, individuals and families, family oh, offices. No. But it's actually we're, so we're much the, more. I mean, the, we're in the trillions yeah, yeah. Of, of clients uh, AUM that we uh, that we consult and advise on. So Fantastic. Uh, we appreciate that. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. Uh, we'll just make yeah, Pierre. Yeah. Re- talk that. <laughs> all right. I appreciate you. No, thank you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. Jason, pleasure to meet you, my friend. This is an excellent conversation. You as well. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on.